This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Okay, so today we're moving on to the second of the Dasadamas, which is, as you will recall, my life is dependent upon others. I am sustained by the gifts of others. So my first response in reading that was how true it is. And um, just in a general thing, how all of us are sustained by the gifts of others and by the efforts of others. Uh, I did a solitary retreat, oh God, years ago, uh, up in Scotland somewhere, in a wee place on the coast. And uh, <coughs> I read the Gandavua Sutta aloud during this. Uh, I used to do mad things like that. And I got into this whole thing about the interconnectedness of all beings. You know the bit in the Gandavua um, near the end where there's the stuff about the towers and there's the um, Maitreya's tower which you go into and every other tower's independent but it's all in there and and I had the you know I was really kind of mind blown by it and I was in this very expansive scenery of near a loch and uh, there was when we village shop and I went up to the village shop at one point to buy something and I looked at the shop and everything in the shop I could see all the myriad <laughs> beings who had come together to create this, you know. Like my loaf of bread I was about to buy had been baked by a baker up the road and they'd got the wheat from and the, the you know, etc, etc. The jam had been made by somebody in the village who had been making it for, you know, generations and they'd used blackberries from their garden and somebody'd sown the seeds of that and blah, 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 blah. And there were things like, you know, tins of things that I wasn't buying. But I was looking at these tins and having this bliss experience when I was really had to restrain myself from prostrating to the women in the village shop and saying to her, you know, like, you are with all beings and you know <laughs> it was like I'd gone into this total kind of probably slightly bonkers but very uh, spiritually f- uh, feeding you know nourishing kind of space so I think you know when I, that was what came to my mind when I thought about this thing about being sustained by the gifts of others I think it's Thich Nhat Hanh that has a meditation in their uh, into being sangha where uh, he talks about taking a piece of paper and, you know, meditating on the trees that went into doing that and who'd planted the trees and, you know, in every piece of paper there is a forest and stuff like that. So I, I quite like that kind of sense. So, and it struck me also that to think of this verse from this uh, sutta, my life is dependent on others. I am sustained by the gifts of others. Is a quite a big shift in paradigm, as well, from a certain um, determined. I've put in here. It's a it's a shift from determined independence to creative dependency. 
And I was reminded that Banty said somewhere years ago that there's healthy independence and unhealthy independence, healthy dependence and unhealthy dependence, and we don't usually know which is which. And it's sometimes quite hard to know which is which. And part of the process of individuating, as it were, is learning when to be independent and when to be dependent, i.e. ask for help or recognise that we can't do things on our own or recognise that um, others might have a way of helping us in something. We don't have to grit our teeth and go it alone. And I think there is something um, in society these days which there's quite a strong paradigm, quite a strong message, assumption that one has to make it alone, as it were. And if not alone, you can rely on a very small group of people who's probably your partner and, you know, family and maybe a few close people. But the sense of actually being able to lean into a community as something that sustains, nourishes and upon which we can depend is quite unusual. And uh, when Damadina and uh, Kemasuri met, they made quite a lot of notes which they sent to me. And under this particular heading, they'd put Thatcher. <laughs> that was all they'd put. <laughs> of course, I had to think, what on earth could they possibly mean? <laughs> you know, I'd never have thought of that. I thought... <laughs> it was code. Well, I think I, uh, I got it, you know. And, um, you know, we often sort of joke about people coming along being Thatcher's children. But the truth of the matter is, at least where I was living in the UK who lived through the 80s and 90s and noughties and now are living the inheritance of Mrs Thatcher's reign, as it were. Some of us can remember before that. <laughs> and I'm not saying it was all great and wonderful either then, but there are certain things that she really dismantled and many of the things that she dismantled were to do with collective values. I mean, she's, there's that famous scene, isn't there, where she said, there is no society. There is no such thing as society. And, uh, you know, I think it's hard sometimes to really see what that means and what the, what the effect is that that's had. And I was talking about this to somebody recently uh, about here, because the equivalent in the USA are Reagan's children, you know, and it's the, the offspring of that unhealthy, awful... Kind of marriage between Reagan and Thatcher. I know which makes one shudder at the thought. But anyway, the kind of offspring of that, a uh, Gen X, actually, you know, and kind of beyond. And I was talking to somebody who was about to go. They were having a Gen X teachers conference in in America after the one I was on. Uh, people born between ninety. Well, here we say between sixty five and eighty. It seems to, they, they were talking about it between 1960 and 1980, which is quite different actually, because 60 to 65, I think, are definitely much more tail end baby boomers. Yeah, the baby boomers is a big It's a big one. It's it? post war mm-hmm. up 60. to 1960 or 65. So people born sort of in that period are the people who are coming into leadership roles and, you know, take it in all sorts of Buddhist communities. Because most Buddhist communities, I mean Western convert communities, are have been run and led by the baby boomer generation because 
we were the ones that were <laughs> old enough at the time to do it. Most of us that got involved in Sri Ratna FWBO were in our 20s, early 30s with baby boomers. We were of that generation that were trying to shift all sorts of values and and uh, that that was part of the paradigm in a way that was there in the setting up of the movement. And I do think a lot of the shifts that have happened, I mean, they're related to the people coming along and the people coming in and, you know, different demographics, different worldviews even, really. And, uh, you know, I'm certainly not blaming Mrs. Thatcher for everything to do with that. But she was certainly a factor in the kind of individualism that rose up. As, as distinct to individuals coming together to create community. So, you know, you could say that individualism has run riot. And Banshee was telling me, oh, it was a couple of years ago now, I went to see him about something. We were still in Birmingham, and he'd just listened to a programme on Radio 4, as he does. And uh, it was talking about the fact that the Samaritans weren't, were having to close down quite a lot of their... Um, branches because they weren't getting enough volunteers and in this discussion uh, I don't know what program it was but in this discussion it was probably women's hour yeah um, <coughs> there was an, an opening it talking about char the charity sector in general and how that had shifted and changed in the last 15-20 years and how there was a lack of volunteers kind of coming along and uh, he was saying he felt that was reflected in Sri Ratna as well, mm. that that kind of sense of everybody for themselves mm. was definitely something he was very, very concerned about creeping in. So it was quite a few years ago. And I think he brought it up in a college meeting in some Q&A, which I can't remember why or what it was about, but he brought it up in that. Oh, I, I do remember, actually, it was. I think it was connected with the thing of him feeling concerned that people ended up overly putting overly weight on the private preceptor and the private ordination and kind of almost seeing the public ordination as just a big party. But that the real part of the ordination ceremony was the private and then the public was just to kind of get together, hear the name and have a little cake. And that he really wanted the public preceptors to shift that perception because I think he said something like, you know, you need both parts. Without the first part, you don't have that individual commitment, but actually you're committing to a community and that this, the public ceremony part of the ceremony is the acknowledging that you're coming into a community and that that's a crucial part of ordaining into this particular community. He said, anybody, you know, you can be a Buddhist in any sort of context, but to be a Buddhist in this context, the public ordination marks that sense of community. And I guess that's reflected in uh, the vows that we take at ordination as well, particularly in harmony with friends and brethren, which someday maybe we'll change the language of, but at the moment that's how it's said. <laughs> and, you know, the loyalty to our teachers and in harmony with friends and brethren, what you've got there are two particular um, vows, ordination acceptance vows, which underlie the importance of community and the importance of working within that community. So this 
although this line, you know, I'm sustained by the gifts of others, my life is dependent on others, was originally being said to a monastic sangha, who very literally would be waiting to have their bowl filled, or perhaps were living in a monastic situation, which was um, funded and held by the laity. And that obviously isn't our situation. As far as I know, there aren't any order members. I don't know. I might just not know this, but as far as I know, there aren't any order members who are sustained economically by, say, their ordinance or by their... Some of us get a bit of help sometimes. I've certainly had generosity from people I've ordained and others. But I'm not relying on that for my daily bread, as it were. But nevertheless, I think there is something around this whole idea of as we step into the community, that we shift the paradigm from even from personal practice to the fact that our practice makes up part of the collective that we become part of. And, uh, and I think that's really, really important to keep, you know, kind of trying to get over to people. Um, yeah. So none of that was actually on my sheet of paper, but that's all right. So the underlying paradigm shift that I went to look at today is a shift of paradigm from a sense of separation to a sense of interconnectedness. And you could say, therefore, we're looking at the third poison. So yesterday I concentrated on the poison of greed and hatred and how we could combat those, how we have to recognise that they have um, you know, institutionalised power and how do we as a community, as well as individuals, how do we as a community you know, try and confront and change that. And I really felt moved by the ritual yesterday afternoon. You know, I think I was thinking a bit about it yesterday evening. <coughs> um, oh, just, you know, like people's willingness to step in, literally, to step into that space and share, you know, what they were doing. And that each person spoke from their own context. You know, I felt that was very noticeable. There wasn't a kind of... I think, you know, the world should something or another. It was very much to do with what people can and are and will do in the conditions and circumstances that we live in. So I think that's really... I found that very touching, actually, very moving. So today, looking more at that third poison of ignorance and delusion, because the ignorance and delusion is what keeps us separate. It's that sense of believing in the fact that we have separate, independent uh, origination and self. So I want to look a bit at interconnectedness. So this might be a little bit of a detour from the Dasadama, but anyway, I'm sure you'll bear with me. Um, so interconnectedness is such a buzzword, <laughs> and it has been for quite a while. I find myself getting mildly irritated sometimes when I hear people talking about interconnectedness because it seems to come in a bit of a lovely, fuzzy, warm haze, which means nothing. So, I'm sure, well, maybe it doesn't mean nothing. But I've certainly had conversations and I've heard people talk and I've read things where people are talking about us as interconnected. But as far as I can see... A real genuine understanding of our interconnectedness would lead to behaviour change. And often it seems to me, or there are times when it seemed to me like there are people who are, ex, you know, they're expounding 
the truth of interconnectedness, but they're just carrying on as if they were totally separate. So I, you know, I've found it quite important at times to challenge that when I've met it. I uh, I was on a kind of panel thing some quite a long time ago now, maybe about ten years ago, that was being hosted by the Amida Trust, and uh, <laughs> there were a number of us giving little talks, and interconnectedness came up in every single one of them, because it was about engaged Buddhism, and of course interconnectedness is a kind of underpinning for engaged Buddhism. But not one of them, except me, spoke about the philosophical underpinning of that. And I felt that was really quite crucial. Why are we interconnected? From a Buddhist viewpoint, what actually does that mean? So I want to look at interconnectedness through different foci. And I'd like to not think of it as a sentimental kind of way of feeling good about myself. (laughs) myself. So I guess philosophically or cognitively or metaphysically it's underpinned by Paticca Samipada. Now this is nothing new, we are all well educated in this, but maybe it's just worth reminding ourselves that that is the underpinning for it. So it's the three lakshanas, it's the Buddha's teaching that all conditioned phenomena arise in dependence and when the conditions that have given rise to that phenomena phenomenon have changed, the phenomenon ceases to be in the form that it currently is. So we know that, we see it every day. Out of that understanding of dependent origination, the Buddha taught that we can see conditioned existence through these three marks or three lakshanas. So I won't concentrate loads in it because it's stuff that we're all very familiar with. Um, But if we kind of really penetrate that or try to penetrate that, it's kind of easy to see impermanence or understand impermanence. I mean, frankly, we just have to look in the mirror, you know, (laughs) most of us, over time. And even the youngest amongst you, I'm sure, will have seen changes through time in their... um... One of the things that totally horrifies me is that I look in the mirror and see my mother. (laughs) <laughs> and I wonder how she got here. <laughs> when, when did she come? <laughs> when did she start living at Adistana? And uh, it's not only what I see in the mirror, but I hear myself sometimes channeling my dead mother. So, you know, we do kind of change nose. And <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, hair falls out, gets grey, etc., etc. All the parts of us start... I love this Leonard Cohen song. It's Tower of Song, I think, where he says, I'm aching in the places where I used to play. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a good line. (laughs) So, you know, we we get impermanence. We live in permanence. And and it gets... We get it thrown at our face anyway, where people dying on us and leaving us and changing around us and all that kind of thing, you know. Communities falling apart and things that we don't like happen to us and the things that we do like cease to happen to us. So we get that, we get that. We might not like it, we might not always be able to remember it and live in accordance with it, but we kind of get it. But insubstantiality just pushes it that bit further. So not only is the Buddha saying there is nothing that lasts forever, he's saying there's no thing that lasts forever. There is coming into being, there is passing away. You know, that is true of everything. 
everything arises in dependence upon conditions. So the Buddha taught uh, dependent origination, which is, I like to think of Patitya Samuppada as dependent origination, because, um, as well as thinking about it in terms of cause and effect. To just think that everything arises, and therefore everything is part of this arising and passing, and we're all, in a sense, part of each other's conditions. If there is nothing fixed and unchanging that fundamentally makes me, me, and there's nothing fixed and unchanging that fundamentally makes you, you, then in a sense what we all are is a currently existing, in a particular way, series of phenomena which are interconnected and come together. So I don't think I need to say much more than that. When I gave that particular talk, I went into quite a lot of it. Well, I used the um, the image that Banti uses in The Three Jewels of a leaf. You know, in like, if we think of the leaf as it passes through time, its attributes change, its colour changes, its smell changes, its taste, its texture, etc., etc. And what the Buddha is saying is not only is that a change in phenomenon, but actually it's, it is change. That is what it is. It's, it's a verb rather than a noun. And I find that quite a helpful way to think of it. So there's no skeletal leaf around which these other things kind of hang, as it were. Now, I know that image or model doesn't work for everybody. I've had that fed back to me when I've given talks. But actually, I've found it useful. I've found it quite a good way of um, perceiving, as it were, you know, that I can, I can see that in the leaf, I can kind of get that in the leaf, that there's a red leaf that gives rise to, you know, there's a, a green leaf that gives rise to a red leaf that gives rise to. And at some point that leaf ceases to exist as a leaf and becomes part of the conditions for the next leaf as it becomes part of the you know, mulch which allows the next life to kind of come through. And in a sense, I think, we, you know, if I, if I think of that as a leaf, I can also think of it as me. I can get that sense that there is nothing in part of me that is inherently separate or inherently existent even. That it has all come into being in terms of conditions. And it's constantly I, that I consider I, is a constantly changing flux. And I think that's very liberating when we can get a sense of that. You know, initially, if you come across this idea of emptiness and shunyata, it can seem very bleak. And for anyone who has a kind of nihilistic mode of being or thought or, you know, tendency, uh, I can see how it can create a nice big black hole to fall down. In actual fact, I think when we can get a real understanding of it, it's extraordinarily liberating and free, freeing. The fact that there is nothing which is inherently fixed, that all is arising, all is passing. You know, and I don't want to be too poetic about it, it's not my best medium, but, you know, that we are all part of that dance of life that's coming into being, and we're all part of each other's conditions. You know, we come together, and that modifies who we are, and we're not as hard and fast as we think we are. And in a sense, to the extent that we can understand that, then we get a real sense of that interdependency. 
Another way of thinking about that is to think about the effect that our actions have. You know, in a way, I think if we if we um, really get that sense of being part of something much bigger, then how could we act in a way that would harm? So as Shantideva says uh, in the Bodhicharya Avatara, although it has many divisions, such as arms and so on, the body is protected as a whole. Likewise, different beings with their joys and sorrows are all equal, like myself, in their yearning for happiness. He talks somewhere else, in the Bodhicharya Avatara, there's quite strong images of that interconnectedness of, you know, um, how the world is an interconnected phenomenon. And, well, of course, if we protect this that we consider I, then to the extent that we can break through that, of course, what happens sometimes is that we see that, but in a very limited way. We can see our interconnectedness, our mode of protectiveness can broaden. But unless we've really seen through that, quite fundamentally, it only broadens to incorporate rather than to let go. So that rather than just protecting me, I will protect me and mine. You know, I will protect the we go that I then feel part of. And uh, I remember somebody telling me that, somebody that's done quite a lot of this kind of work that reconnects and has been very engaged with this and had done quite a lot of work on breaking through the sense of self, etc. And then his partner got mugged in a park and um, there was probably a racist mugging. It was probably a combination of homophobia and racism. And uh, so my friend immediately felt himself just go into this rage and he realised that even with all this work being done, the fact that, you know, his interconnectedness included his partner in a way and that rather than it really being a true letting go of the ego, to some extent it had been an addition to the ego and so the fact that that addition was being attacked meant he'd been attacked. And of course there's a genuine desire to protect what we love. And we must have that. And it's a survival instinct in a way. And of course it's very understandable for somebody to be very upset and angry about somebody they hold very dear being attacked in a nasty kind of way. So it's like it's human and natural. And actually it's what we're really trying to kind of go beyond. So, you know. I found that really quite interesting. It was, it was quite an insight experience for this friend of mine, and uh, yeah, it was good to sort of hear about it. Because we do primarily see the world as separate. We do. I mean, it's, you know, the Yogacara makes that very clear, that that is part of the kind of initial conditions in a sense of being human. We are working against something that's quite instinctual, and then it's reinforced in so many ways, right from the word go. And David Loy in Money, Sex, War and Karma <coughs> says, Buddhism offers us a different perspective. In place of a battleground of wills where good contends against evil, the most important struggle is the spiritual one between ignorance and delusion on the one side and liberating wisdom on the other. Seeing the world primarily as a war between good and evil is one of our most dangerous delusions. 
And I think any religion needs to be aware of that. Because I think it's very easy to fall into, well, religion, organised religion, nation state, whatever, to fall into that we and them, we and other. Um, I mean, it's interesting uh, how deeply ingrained that is within us and how hard it is to, to shift that. So... Um, Shantideva, of course, also says this very beautifully in the Bodhicharya Avatara, that I'm sure we're all familiar with. Virtue is perpetually ever so feeble, and the power of vice is great and extremely dreadful. I quite like this translation. If there were no spirit of perfect awakening, what other virtue could overcome this? So in the, the Bodhicharya Avatara seminar, Way, from way back, the endlessly fascinating cry. That's Bunty's asked about that. Well, what does this mean? You know, that the power of good is weak and the power of evil strong. Does that mean we should just not bother? And he's saying, no. What it's pointing to is you cannot are you cannot fight it on its own level. You know, you can't um, fight it psychologically, as it were. You can't fight it kind of by by. Um, somehow assigning yourself to the side of good and seeing other as the side of bad, whatever the conduct is, whatever, you know and this isn't to say that we don't speak out against injustice or we don't speak out against when we see prejudice etc, etc as we were talking about yesterday but it's doing that from the point of view of non-separateness it's quite a task I mean it's not, you know an easy it's not something we just tick the box, done that, off we go kind of thing. It's probably a life task, it's probably... But it's a task that I think is really crucial to our spiritual life. And this spirit of perfect awakening, which overcomes that um, dichotomy between virtue and vice, is of course the bodhicitta. The heart of the bodhisattva, beaten in time with all beings, and not just choosing to beat with the beings that suit, as it were, that fit. That's the overcoming of the separation of self and other, and the identifying um, with me and mine at the expense of them and theirs. So just to finish this little bit about looking kind of more philosophically, as it were, about the underpinning of interconnectedness, being emptiness, um, that emptiness does not mean the sense of nihilistic nothingness on the contrary it's the opposite of that and there's a lovely quote from Hui Ning which um, Stephen Batchelor quotes in Verses from the Centre where he's talking about emptiness and he says um, as a young man Hui Ning is said to have experienced awakening on hearing a passage from the Diamond Cutter Sutta which contained the phrase, where the mind has nowhere to rest. He later described this non-resting as the original nature of humanity. For Hui Neng, the practice of meditation then entailed seeing this nature without confusion. Emptiness is a way of living in the rich and complex world rather than a becoming absorbed in the mystical state. I 
really like that Stephen Batchelor. I really like that. Yeah. Um, emptiness is a way of living in the rich and complex world rather than becoming absorbed in a mystical state. So I'll come back to that in a minute. But this is a quote from Queen Eng. Queen Eng says, Do not sit with a mind fixed on emptiness. If you do, you will fall into a neutral kind of emptiness. Emptiness includes the sun, moon, stars and planets, the great earth, mountains and rivers, all trees and grasses, bad folk and good folk, bad things and good things, heaven and hell. These are all there in the midst of emptiness. I love that. It's such a helpful way, I think, of getting that understanding of interconnectedness coming out of emptiness or emptiness giving rise to interconnectedness rather than um, kind of falling into it in some yeah, well, absorption of mysticism. I quite like that. Not that there's anything wrong with an absorption of mysticism now and again. It's the kind of what we do with that later. And, uh, oh God, um, um, it reminded me of something that Banty said in uh, a question and answer that he did many moons ago on what we called a Terry's retreat, which was a retreat for, it was over 10, it was actually, what it was, was all the women that Banty had ordained plus a year. For various reasons, we plussed a year, which meant that uh, Maitre and Ratnadamni and that lot's year were included. So um, Banti was there and he did a Q&A. It was at Tirantnaloka. And Anoma had asked a question, if I remember correctly, which she'd written to Banti, and it was something about how to stay kind of um, in the busyness of running Tirantnaloka. Can you remember this? how to stay kind of positive and not get overly caught up in that and how to kind of have that sense of you know, your personal practice in a way. And Banti had written something to an old man in response to this, if I'm remembering correctly. This is like, I don't know, 12 years ago or something. Um, and Banti said, he'd written to her saying, this is the Bodhisattva ideal, basically. You need to be practising as a bodhisattva, an aspirant bodhisattva to do that. So in this Q&A, she asked him to expand on that a bit. And he went into this thing about saying your shunyata must not get caught up in daily life, but your daily life must not get caught up in shunyata. <laughs> I sort of thought that was really interesting. And by shunyata, in that, as I understood it, he meant that kind of spacious emptiness that can be contacted in a more meditative state and that had to feed into your activity but your activity had to also be present in that sense of spaciousness and he said something like I was going to look it up but I didn't have time but he said something like eventually in practice there is no separation between shunyata and activity and he talked about ethics being quite crucial to that and how some his concern was that if people felt they had uh, really kind of going into shunyata, they might feel no need to practice ethically. So this is a concern that he's, you know, expressed in all sorts of different guises over the years and currently expresses in terms of his concerns around people feeling that they might have broken through the sense of self. And he, his concern is that that that's wonderful, 
and it mustn't lead to a sense that um, ethical practice becomes obsolete. I don't think it has actually myself, but you know, for people, but that is a concern there is. So that was the kind of that understanding that uh, emptiness is the basis of our interconnectedness, that it's no interconnectedness somehow imposed upon just carrying on as ever, as usual. And of course that sense of emptiness gives rise to compassion because we can know, as Shantideva says, you know, we, we would understand that all beings are equal, like myself, search for happiness. And that's the basis of the bodhicitta practices we've been doing it, that all beings like myself, seek happiness and yet, again and again, create the conditions for suffering what I could do. And that sort of compassion aspect, I mean, there's a lot that one could say about it, but all I do want to say about it is that it's not just compassion in terms of a response to a situation, which is our normal understanding of compassion, that compassion is when our metaphor heart meets the suffering of another we respond to that. That's obviously part of it, but that's not the end of it. So this compassion that would arise from our realisation of interconnectedness and shunyata is a, 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 it's married with insight because that shunyata is the wisdom aspect. So it's compassion married with wisdom and insight. And therefore we would be able to sense, to have a, a sense of compassion not only towards the people the person who has been made to suffer, but also towards those who have created the conditions for their suffering. And this is where it starts to get kind of challenging, isn't it? You know, uh, the perpetrator is as worthy of our compassion as the, the victim, to use that kind of language. And there's that Thich Nhat Hanh poem where he identifies as um, many, you know, different things with that image, and it is, Call Me By My True Names. And there's a bit in it where he says, I am the young girl who was raped by the sea pirate and threw herself overboard. I am the sea pirate whose heart is still closed. It, it's such a kind of amazingly powerful depth and level of compassion and it can only come from real insight. And it doesn't mean that what the sea pirate did was okay. It doesn't mean we just sit back and accept that that kind of behaviour happens. But we're trying not to separate even from the sea pirate. And the only way to do that is to have that sense of wisdom, that real understanding of Shunyata. And this perhaps is Buddhism's great offering, or one of Buddhism's great offering to the world's problems, as it were. I think I might have mentioned that yesterday as well. There's something about being able to see through that separation of self and other, which is just unbelievably radical. An extraordinary. Um, just very quickly, I've told this story in other talks, but just very quickly mention a dream that I had many years ago when I was on a retreat. And some of you have heard this, but um, I was—I don't know if I was ordained or very newly ordained. But anyway, I dreamt it was in the eighties, and I had this dream that my task, my spiritual task, was to sing songs to the dying. And there I was, I'd go to wherever there were people dying and I would sing to help them move into the next stage. And there I was, I found myself over Nicaragua. This is why I know it was the 80s, the early <laughs> 80s. 
And there was, and a great battle was happening, and many spirits, as it were, and souls even, were kind of arising from this battle. And there I was singing to them. But what I was doing was I was stopping them and asking them if they were Sandinistas or Contras. <laughs> and if they were Sandinistas, I'd happily sing them into the next intermediate stage. And if they were San uh, Contras, I was saying, no way, Jose. <laughs> Off you go. And I woke up out of this really desperately upset because I realised how conditional my meta and compassion really was and how, you know, how based it was in my own prejudices and biases and assumptions and filters, you know. I mean, I didn't give myself too hard the time about it, but it, it kind of really brought something home to me. And, um, you know, I might still be able to make an analysis of a particular situation and decide that there are people whose motives are not good. I mean, I think conscious motives were worthy of challenge. But that doesn't mean that I would uh, deny them the right to a good death. <laughs> but, well, anyway, that was just a little, for me, quite an insight experience to realise that. Okay, the other aspect of interconnectedness that I think is worthy of thinking about is the ethical or volitional. So in a way, the un understanding, the underpinning of Patija Samadpada is the cognitive way of coming at interconnectedness. Compassion, you could say, is a kind of emotional, in a particular sense, feeling response. And the ethics is a more volitional. It's more to do with how we are acting in the world. And to the extent that we can really understand the non-separate nature of ourselves and really get a sense, a felt, living, experiential sense of our non-separateness, then that must have ethical consequences because our understanding of the, if the effects of our actions is no longer theoretical. It's visceral. You know, we feel it. You know, there's that image of Avalokiteshvara being, you know, feeling the filaments of the, the web of conditioning, the web of uh, conditioned existence, wherever there is suffering that impacts. In that sense, you know, we would almost... We just would not be able to act unethically. It would be an impossibility to act in any way unethically, at least consciously act unethically. How could we? So, you know, one way I think of thinking about our ethics is, do, does our behaviour connect us or does it separate us? You know, and you can think through all the precepts in that way. You know, does my speech separate me from who I'm talking to or does it connect me with them? There's a lot we could say about that. One thing I just wanted to say was about confession. And I think confession can be a, a real connector. Uh, but we can we need to be careful sometimes of how we do it and where, how it's received. I mean, in an ideal world, we would just be able to confess anything. And I think it's important that whenever we feel ourselves that we've breached a precept, particularly in relationship to other that we immediately make amends for that. Absolutely immediately. There is no excuse for waiting. Immediately that we recognise that we've broken the precept, we act upon it immediately. Not even in five minutes. Immediately. Um, <laughs> you know, um, but, and I think, but I think confession in the sense of, say, going to your chapter and confessing something, I think it's a really, really important practice. I think we have to learn how to do it well 
and how to hear it and receive it. And one of the things that can happen that I've experienced this myself uh, some time ago, not in my current chapter, but in a chapter where I've said, oh, you know, I just need to confess that I've had some ill will towards person X, and they've gone, God, I'm not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) And then we've spent the next 15 minutes saying how awful person X is and how, you know, and it's not quite as crude as that, but there's an element of that in it. Oh, well, you know, I know what she did or what he did, so I'm not surprised you feel like that. I know, and then you can end up getting into this self-righteous bavana. A collective self-righteous bavana, which is not the purpose of confession. So I think there is work to be done there, and I think sometimes uh, people go off in their ordination retreat, and I think there's a good practice of confession happens, you know, I know, particularly at Akashavana, which is the one that I know. I'm sure it also happens at Gukiloka and on other, you know, places. Where, and then you come back and go into a chapter where maybe some of the people in it are a while away from their ordination and have lost that good habit or something. And it can be a bit jarring. And I've had people say to me, I've tried to bring confession into my chapter and I've just, you know, people don't want to do it or they, you know. So, so I think it is something that would be good to just keep alive. The purpose of, of confession, you know, the, the trying to create a, a context in which we can be ethically sensitive and that that sensitivity won't be jumped upon or something or misused or whatever. Anyway, going back to um, uh, breaking through the ego, um, just uh, one little last thing about ego, and then I'm going back to the Dasadama Sutta. You'll be pleased to know. I don't think they're disconnected, what I'm saying, but I will go back to the specific line in the Dasadama. But um, <laughs> it's to say, I might run over a bit here. Um, just to finish talking about the ego, you know, Buddhism, I mentioned yesterday renunciation, and Buddhism is a path of renunciation, and we often see that as having to renounce people or things, but it's not. What we're renouncing is the ego clinging. It's a path of renunciation of ego clinging. And so realist, really, to the extent we renounce the ego clinging, we're able to be more loving and in touch, and, you know, connected. So, just wanted to finish with that. And a couple of last little quotes. So, um, Bhante, and I think it's in Wisdom Beyond Words. I didn't have time to look it up, but he says, the ego is just a big mistake. (laughs) I think that's great, because you can kind of have a laugh at that. You don't need to get too wound up or upset, but it's just a big mistake. Let it go. And David Loy, again in Money, Sex, War and Karma, says, Buddhism is not about helping us become well-adjusted. A socially well-adjusted ego is still a sick ego. It's still an ego. So a little bit connected with some of the things we've talked about, about, um, you know, practice isn't about making us function better in society. I mean, it might be that it does help us function better in society. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is to undermine society. Earthworms, remember. We should rethink this idea of having a little news sheet called the earthworm. (laughs) So back to the Dasadama. Sustained by the gifts of others. 
you know, my life is dependent on others, sustained by the gifts of others. So one of the things that comes to mind in that is from the Metta Sutta, where one might be easy to support, frugal, not eager after gifts. So that's maybe something to think about. Um, as I say, we're not monastics, so what does this actually mean for us in our, in our practice as a community? Well, I mean, I think there's something around that whole thing of support and not wages that's quite interesting to think about, and how as a community we can help each other. And there are, you know, there are things happening that are allowing that, say on an economic sense, I think the Abhayaratna Trust is wonderful, where, you know, there are some people in the movement in order who do have money, there are many of us who don't. Finding a way where that can be used and to help, and I know the Abhayaratna Trust has already done really, really good work at helping people get on retreats, get to conventions, you know, both in India and in the West. So, you know, if any of you are sitting in a big sum of money and you're wondering where to put it when you die, that's one possibility there by your own trust. Um, and also, it occurred to me, there's something about treading lightly on the earth as a community which came to me in thinking about this line. And I think we can help each other and support each other in that. So we did talk about that yesterday. I'd really like to see something growing out of this retreat, actually, where we are helping each other, even if it's just ones and twos, or if it's in some way. You know, there's been a number of attempts over the years to create a kind of, um, some kind of presence online. There was Luca Bandu started it with what he called the um, PS. Patita Samadpada, engaged Buddhist thing, and then there have been other attempts creating some kind of you know web presence or some kind of group to come together. I'd be interested in talking about that before the end. Maybe it's time is coming. So supporting each other. And then just to kind of conclude, a couple of quotes from Banti. So um, one of the thing, places where Banti talks a bit about this is the case of dysentery. Well, you'll remember he talks about the community looking after each other. So I'm going to read a relatively decent-sized chunk out of that. So um, the, the, He's talked about, you remember the story where the Buddha finds this monk, Buddha and Ananda find this old monk who's got dysentery. He's not been looked after. They both look after him and clean him up, and they take the opportunity to talk to the Sangha about why this is not acceptable really and some of them some of the the sangha members confess the monastics confess and say yeah we didn't look after them but the the buddha isn't completely sure that they've got it so picking it up there this is bante once they had confessed the buddha could then exhort them brethren you have no mother and no father to take care of you if you will not take care of each other who else i ask will do so here the Buddha is laying down an important principle. He is asserting an absolute discontinuity between the biological family and the spiritual family, between the group and the spiritual community. Now I think Dhamma made it very clear that this is not a cutting off from our biological family. And in many ways, many of us end up having much better relationships with our biological families to the extent that we have worked upon ourselves in the spiritual community. Yeah. <clears throat> so don't hear it like that. It's not a harsh cutting off. 
This is meant. This is what is meant by going forth from home into homelessness. When ordained, you go forth from the group to the spiritual community. Spiritually speaking, the group no longer exists for you. And since it no longer exists, you can no longer rely upon it or take refuge in it. Once you've entered the spiritual community, only that community exists. I mean, this is Bante being very rhetorical, you know, as well. It's important to hear him, hear that or exhortation rather than get upset and take it too literally. You know, he's, he's making a point. He's no, you know. Anyway. Um, you can only take refuge in the three jewels. You can only rely on other members of the spiritual community. And that means that other members of the spiritual community must be able to rely on you. You rely on one another, take care of one another, encourage one another and inspire one another. This certainly applies to our own community, the Western Buddhist Order. What was formerly done by family must now be done by spiritual friends. Indeed, we can expect even more from our spiritual friends. But suppose this does not happen. Suppose someone is ill or depressed or experiencing difficulties. If that person is just left as this sick monk was left, well, this person may well drift back to the group. That person may understandably go in search of comfort and consolation elsewhere. So that's quite interesting. It is important that as members of a spiritual community we realise we have no true refuge except with one another. We can expect absolutely nothing from the group and nor should we. We belong absolutely to the spiritual community, to each other. We should be prepared, therefore, to live and die for one another. Otherwise, we have not really gone for refuge. Our future is with one another. We are one another's future. We have no future apart. It's quite strong. If, other, if order members do not love one another, who else might love them? <laughs> I don't think he means we're an unlovable lot. I think he does. <laughs> if order members do not inspire one another, who will inspire them? If we cannot be happy with one another, with whom might we be happy? If they cannot come together with one another, who else could they come together with? We must learn to enjoy each other's company more appreciate each other more and value each other more. By now it should be clear this story is not just a story about a sick monk being neglected. It's not about a simple case of diarrhoea. It is a case of unfailing mutual kindness. A case of personal interest, harmonious and affecting, effective action. It is a case of treating persons as persons and taking delight in each other. Above all, it's a case of mutual responsibility. This is not just something that happened in the past 2,500 years ago. It's a case of what might be happening now in the present and something to look towards the future. This is not just something that concerned the ancient brethren. It's something that concerns their modern successors, i.e. us. So it's interesting to reflect on what that actually means for us, you know. And uh, as I say, it's not, you know, not an exhortation to get up and leave your, your family, leave home. 
whatever. And of course, I think sometimes it was taken overly literally in a particular period in the order's history, and perhaps not with enough kindness. For me, what's really being said here is that we must be able to live as a community with mutual kindness, mutual, you know, looking after each other, and being able to look out for each other, whatever that means. I mean, I had another quote, but there isn't really time for it. From the Ten Pillars, where Bounty talks about mutually, about ownership and how there should be no ownership in the spiritual community. But I'll maybe leave that for another time. So the big paradigm here, I think, shift is in creating community. I think the big paradigm shift here is that my life, once I've entered the order, is dependent upon the rest of the order, and the rest of the order's life is dependent upon me. That we are mutually dependent in that positive and healthy sense that we create community, that we exchange self with other, that we break through that sense of separateness that allows me to think that it's absolutely okay to treat others and to treat the earth as something put there purely for my pleasure and sustaining. And to make that shift, to seeing ourselves as interconnected in the deepest possible way and acting from that. So the paradigm shift is to the bodhisattva, the paradigm shift is from personal spiritual practice to collective spiritual practice. The paradigm shift is from a practitioner where my personal development is paramount to being part of a community where each and every one of us are part of everybody else's practice. So it's towards seeing ourselves as part of Indra's net. And I'll finish with that image. It's a wonderful image. Because in Indra's net, as you'll remember, we're each and every one of us a node in the net. So, of course, we're separate in the sense that we have, at least at the moment, a, a seemingly separate, relatively separate identity. And that must be nourished and cared for and cherished. And the jewel that is our being must be polished and allowed to shine in the sunshine. And yet every node is completely connected with every other node. And in Indra's net, every jewel reflects in every other jewel. And that is such a beautiful image for that paradigm shift. So thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.